Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 6. This is one of Jesus' longest discourses in the Gospels. And as Ed O'Mara, who was here speaking last week for me, as Ed shared last week, Jesus, earlier in John 6, introduces the concept of he being the bread of life. And this morning, we're going to pick up on this discourse beginning in verse 41. So if you look at verse 41, and I will read through to the end of the chapter. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever, whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were not, did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, these words are words spoken by your son that we desire to understand and to know that we might believe in the son of God. Lord, we ask that you would allow our eyes to read and understand our ears to listen and understand our hearts to receive and accept these words that you are speaking to us today. For these are your words, and we are your children desiring to know. Lord, I pray for those here this morning listening that you would give them ears to hear. Lord, help me to exegete this challenging passage. Help me to serve your church this morning to shepherd them well through the preaching of your word make your word come alive in Jesus name amen when Marilyn and I lived in Atlanta our church each year would host an outreach harvest party for all the children in the church as well as those who were invited Uh, on Halloween. And as you can imagine, my three kids came home with bags filled with all sorts of candy. And once I put them to bed that night, I would have a treasure hunt and a feast as I scoured their bags for the candy that I liked. And of course, they would have no clue what was missing because there was still plenty of candy left. They, those bags were rich in candy treasure. And I would repeatedly find the same kinds of candy that I liked again and again. And I would just pull them aside. Marilyn would be going, what are you doing? And I'm just saying, I'm saving our children's teeth. That's what I'm doing. I'm serving my children. This passage in John is in many ways like those bags of candy. They are filled with some of the richest theological truths in all of scripture. In just 30 verses, Jesus repeatedly speaks the same truths over and over again. And it is interesting that as you read through, if you take time to read through this passage and just highlight where you see the same things repeated, where in John six forty four he says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And then he tells him again in six sixty five, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You just see repeated 
theological truths, wonderful truths about the incarnation, truth about the atonement. You will read about election. You'll read about the Trinity. You'll read about God's sovereignty, the resurrection, creation, eternal judgment, the doctrine of salvation, eternal life, the work of the Spirit, Satan, and perseverance of the saints, all in just 30 verses. All Right here, a a rich trove of spiritual truth that our Savior is communicating to this group of people, to three groups of people, the Jews, to this extended group of disciples, and to the twelve. And these truths are are just replete throughout this passage. And, and there's a reason for that. As I was reading this and I was writing down, I just I have lists of all of the same kinds of, of comments about being the bread of life, about thirst, never thirsting, about coming to the Father, about eating His flesh and drinking His blood, about um, just all, all these things, about the Spirit giving life. You just go through over and over and there's just these lists that I, I'm discovering. And I'm, and, I'm at, and I'm asking myself as I'm reading this, Lord, why, why are you so repetitive in this passage? Why repeat? Why take 30 verses in what you could have said in 10? And, and my supposition would be this, two reasons. One, because of the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of the heart of the Jews, the hardness of the disciples' hearts, even the hardness of heart in the twelve, who often did not understand what Jesus communicated at the beginning. But I think there's also another reason why Jesus repeatedly shares the same truth again and again. And I believe it's the mercy of God. It's the love and mercy of God that he wants those who are listening to get it. He wants those who are listening to grasp the truths that he is sharing, to understand their depravity, to understand their hopelessness, to understand their helplessness, to understand their need, to understand the provision of God through Jesus Christ. It is both necessary because of the hardness of heart and necessary because we need the mercy of God. That's why he shares this again and again. Now, what is the message of this long passage? I, I, I've tried to reduce it down. It is, it is a difficult passage. One of the one of the things I used to laugh about in, in Charlotte when I would speak on Sunday, I'd always tell the church that for whatever reason, Mickey Connolly, who would assign our, our, our speaking responsibilities, would always give me the most difficult passage in all the Bible. And so I, 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 throughout the years, I always shared on the most difficult passage in all the Bible. And, and this morning I am sharing on the most difficult passage in all the Bible. Um, What is the message of this passage? I believe it's about being a true disciple of Jesus Christ that we might experience eternal life. That's what I believe this passage is about. It is about 
being a true disciple, what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, that we might experience eternal life. An eternal life that is not just quantitative, in other words, forever and ever after we die, but an eternal life that is literally qualitative, that began the day you were born again, that began the day you came to faith in Christ. Your eternal life does not begin at your death. It began the moment you were regenerated. And so this eternal life that Jesus speaks about in this passage is not just a quantitative forever and ever, but it's a qualitative experiencing eternal life now in this life until you reach that day where it does become not only quantitative, but far more qualitative once you become a saint in the presence of God. It is as much about our life now as our life after death. Now, there's need for a little background here. Jesus has just miraculously crossed the lake with his disciples, the Sea of Galilee. It's been a power-packed day, few days for him and for his disciples, as well as all of the crowds following them. The crowds followed because Jesus had been doing in Jerusalem and in Cana numerous wondrous signs, turning water into wine, healing the nobleman's son, healing the lame man who had been lame for 38 years, feeding the 5,000. At the beginning of chapter 6, we see crowds running from one side of the lake to the other, following after Jesus because they had been seeing him and watching him do all these signs and wonders. And, And now they experience another one. They experience being fed miraculously from two fish and five loaves of bread and and word gets out and now Jesus sends his disciples to the other side of the lake to Capernaum and we read another of the signs where he walks on water and they end up in Capernaum and the crowds discover where is Jesus? They get up the next morning basically and they're wondering where did Jesus go? And, and they follow him and they, they, word has gotten out he's in Capernaum and so that's where they end up. And although he has again disappeared, the crowds find a way. And, and so they end up all in the synagogue. As you read in verse 59, Jesus said all these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And so there's these crowds, these Jews primarily in the synagogue, but crowds outside and they're listening to Jesus share this discourse. Many, many are there for the wrong reasons, but they are there nonetheless And they are interested in seeing more signs and wonders. That's what attracts them to Jesus. They had just spent an entire day in a remote area by the Sea of Galilee as Jesus preached to them about the kingdom of God. And all they wanted was more signs. John mentions these three groups, the Jews, the larger group of disciples, and the twelve. And it's in this long discourse that Jesus makes two crucial claims. He describes two crucial elements, and one is who he is. Jesus talks about in this passage who he is. He is the one who has come down from heaven. He is the bread of life. He is the son of man. He is the one who has a father in heaven. He is the one who is and was from heaven. He is the one, the word who became flesh. 
That is the claim that Jesus makes. But also he helps us by making a claim about what a true disciple is. Who it is who is really a true disciple that is following him. Those who believe his claim that he came down from heaven. Those are the ones, he says, are his true disciples. And that's what I think this passage are. The claims, I mean, he's made numerous claims throughout his, his ministry. And in this passage, verse 41 and 42, he says that I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the incarnate one. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is fulfilling John 1.14 in front of them. He is saying, that's who I am. John, the writer, is communicating that to his readers. Here is what I spoke of earlier. He is the bread of life. Verse 44 and 45, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the one who rose from the dead and will raise us up from the dead. In verse 44, 45, 46, and 47, he speaks of God being his father. In verse 46, he says, I am the only one who has seen God. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. And he just said, I am from God. I have seen the father And in verse 51, he says, I am the atoning sacrifice for sin. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. These are the claims that Jesus is making. And he is making these claims to a Jewish audience in their synagogue. Talk about stirring up trouble. And so it's understandable in verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. Absolutely. In fact, as you read earlier in, in John uh, 1 through 22, John 6, 1 through 22, he is claiming to do the works of God. He is claiming to be equal with God. And by that claim, the Jews want to kill him. These are the claims he is making. All these claims have the Jews grumbling and they are incensed. They want to put him to death. All the signs that he has done, all the miracles he has performed mean nothing. Those following loved the benefits of his power. They were blind, but they were blind to the truth of who he is. They were blind to the truth of where the power that he exhibited came from. And it's these claims and their response to these claims that John, in his, as he writes this gospel, reveals who not only Jesus is, but who a true disciple of Jesus Christ is. Who is a real disciple? Here's my proposition to you this morning. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is one who comes to him believes in him and follows him at all cost with the hope of eternal life. I'll read that again. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is one who comes to him, believes in him, and follows him at all cost with the hope of eternal life. Three points this morning. 
The first one is this, a true disciple comes to Jesus and finds eternal life. A true disciple. Verse 41 through 51. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Excuse me. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The the, the central verse here is 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. A true disciple is one who comes to Christ. The Jews found Jesus to be a stumbling block because he came to them as a lowly servant and not a conquering king. These Jews could not see, as we see in the beginning, he's the son of Joseph and, and Mary, his mother and father. We know how could he be someone who comes from God? They couldn't see past his lowly estate as a as a servant. They wanted a conquering king. And these Jews would they were stumbling because their pride refused to believe that he could actually come from God. And these, these Jews were not aware of their own spiritual deadness. They, they have a profound confidence in their own goodness and their own moral ability to have a relationship with God. They believed that by their efforts, their works, their legalistic approach to life, they could earn God's acceptance And Jesus makes it clear, no one can come to me unless God does the work first. That is a stumbling block to them. They could not come to God because they had no desire to come to God. It's not that they cannot come physically to God. They could not come morally. They had no moral inclination to move towards God. And that is what Jesus is communicating to them. You are dead internally. You are spiritually dead. You have no moral inclination to come. Yeah, you can physically go into the house of God. You can physically sit in this synagogue and you can read the words of Scripture, but you are dead and you cannot come to God. You cannot have a relationship with God unless it's through me. You have to come to me. Only a true disciple will come to Christ. And here's the thing, is that if we resist, we're not a true disciple. If we resist coming, we're not a true disciple. What a mystery and tension we face when we're confronted with the doctrine of election in a passage like this. No one can come to God unless God draws him. No one. Well, then why does God hold me responsible if I can't come unless he draws me? 
Because your moral inclination is never to come to God in the first place. Your moral inclination is to rebel against God, to reject God. It's as though people think, well, if I want to come to God, he's going to say no. No, that's not the way it works. We cannot come to him without him drawing, and yet we don't want to come unless he draws us. J.C. Ryle said this about this passage and these truths. He said, these things, no doubt, are deep and mysterious. By truths, meaning the doctrine of election, by truths like these, God proves the faith and patience of his people. Can they believe him? Can they wait for a fuller explanation at the last day? What they see not now, they shall see hereafter. One thing at any rate is abundantly clear, and that is man's responsibility for his own soul. His inability to come to Christ does not make an end of his accountableness. Both things are equally true. If lost at last, it will prove to, be, to have been his fault. Christ would have saved him, but he would not be saved. He would not come to Christ that he might have life. That is the problem with the human heart. We do not want to come to Christ. And so Jesus makes this claim, no one can come to me. And if you do want to come to Christ, you are a true disciple. That's what makes a true disciple. And Jesus once again repeats again the truth about eternal life that he's been speaking about in verses 47 through 51. Truly, truly, I say, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes has eternal life. The disciples, true disciples, have ears to hear and a desire to learn from Jesus. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There is an inclination in the heart to want to learn from God. That's what a true disciple is. Jesus is making it clear. Only a true disciple wants to learn from God. Those who do not want to learn from God are not true disciples. Jesus speaks here, the bread that your fathers ate in the wilderness, which was given to them by God, and it did sustain them for a time. That bread, those who ate it, they all died. That was not the bread that would give them eternal life. The bread that I am now offering, Jesus said, the bread that you are being offered at this moment, it is eternal and will give you eternal life because that bread is my flesh. That bread is me. And the very flesh that will be, in verse 51, sacrificed for your sin that you might be atoned for and that you might have eternal life. A true disciple is one who desires to come to me. That is a true disciple. Secondly, a true disciple is one who feeds on Jesus and experiences eternal life. One commentator wrote this. He said, this chapter began with the feeding of the 5,000 and physical bread. Jesus has shown that physical, material food is insufficient to meet the Jew's real need, which is eternal life. This need can only be met by God coming to earth and giving his life on behalf of the world. 
Now, what does feeding on Jesus mean? On the surface, this is a gruesome passage. It's, it appears that Jesus is a proponent of cannibalism. That we eat human flesh. That's how it appears on the surface. And as you look throughout church history, you will find many unhelpful explanations about what this passage is all about. Jesus is not talking about literally eating his body. Secondly, it's, it's also not a passage about the Lord's Supper. That's not what this passage is about. Someone can partake of the Lord's Supper and not be a true disciple. But they cannot be a true disciple unless they feed on Christ. This passage is not about cannibalism. It's not about the Lord's Supper. The answer to this question is that eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood in this passage refers to the very thing he was speaking about earlier in John 6.35. If you look at John 6.35, Jesus is speaking and he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. That is the very thing he's talking about. He said that men and women must believe in him. That is what it means to feed on his flesh and drink his blood, is to feed on him. Verse 29, he goes through numerous, and that's why he repeats himself. Verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 47, again, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood is about believing. And it's also, they must come to him. Verse 35, verse 40, they must look to Jesus. They must listen and learn. Verse 45, they must find life in his atoning death. Verse 51, a true disciple does these things. A true disciple craves Christ even above the necessary food of this life. That's what a true disciple is. A true disciple I spent six days in Scotland eating at different places. The food was good. But I remember when I got off the plane on Tuesday night, for whatever reason, I just craved a McDonald's hamburger. And, and, and I just, it's just one of those, it's, it's, I don't know if it's like an, an addictive gene inside of me having grown up with McDonald's, but I was just craving a McDonald's hamburger. That, that's what I thought about as I was driving home from the airport. I want a McDonald's hamburger. There are foods we all crave. There are foods that we all desire. But do we crave Christ? Do we crave Jesus above all our necessary food? Is he as real to you spiritually as something that you can taste or touch? Is he as fulfilling as the food you eat, the movies you watch, the vacations you take, the world you see, the relationships you have? Is he that real? Is he more real to you than those things? That is who a true disciple is. That's what it means to feed on Christ. 
to come to him, to believe in him, to look to him, to listen to his words, to trust in his atoning death, to feed on the truths of who Jesus is and why he has come. Do you desire to know him more than the things that you have in this world? That sounds like huge piety and wow, just super religious. But that's not what Jesus is speaking about here. He's just speaking about the basics of being a disciple of Christ. Nothing in this world can be more important. In fact, he, he says something that is offensive to many. He said, look, your relationship with me is far more important than husband, wife, father, mother, brother, and sister. Those things are nothing compared to a relationship with me. Nothing. To feed on him, to be a true disciple and feed on him is to desire him above all things. Unless he is this real to us, Jesus states here, we have no life in him. Unless we feed on him first, we will not have eternal life. Unless we feed on him, we will not abide in him. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's how radical this is. That's how radical it is to be a disciple of Christ. You have no life in you unless you feed on him and him alone. Look at verse 54 and 55. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And, And this is said five times in this passage. And I will raise him up on the last day. There is this promise of eternal life, of resurrection, if we as true disciples feed on him. And look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Abides in me and I in him. It's not just in the life to come, but it's now. As you feed on him, he abides in you. And you abide in him. It is a quality of life above no other. It is a quality of life only promised as we feed on his flesh and drink his blood. This is not a vampire movie being described here. This is a true disciple of Jesus Christ who finds life in him alone. A true disciple, a true disciple is one who comes to him. A true disciple is one who feeds on him. A true disciple is one who remains with Jesus regardless of the cost. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It is hard for somebody to look at you and say, you know what? 
feeding on Christ, being a true disciple of Christ is more important than everything and anything else you have in your life. What about my wife and my children? What, what about... No, there's nothing more important. This is a hard saying. Everything in this life is gray, pale, in comparison to feeding and knowing and abiding with Jesus in being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What, what, is, what is Jesus saying? He's, he's really responding to their unbelief. He, he's saying, you know what? So what, what if I went back to heaven? What if I ascended back to heaven? I didn't come down. What would that mean to you? What would that mean to you? Because you are grumbling about the very thing that will give you eternal life. In, in the Greek, this, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Actually, in the Greek is who can tolerate it? Who can tolerate what you're saying? They couldn't bring themselves to believe that he came from God. They denied the incarnation. They couldn't believe and accept that he needed to die on a cross. They could not accept that only Christ could earn salvation for them. They could not accept that only God could draw them and they could come to Christ through God. They hated the idea that they could not decide for themselves whether or not they wanted to follow God. They wanted their independence. True disciples are not independent of God. True disciples have no life apart from God. They abide in Christ. And we live in a world that does not want anyone telling them what to do. We live in a world that wants its independence. We live in a country that was born out of independence and rebellion. And we carry that in our own hearts. Jesus responds to their unbelief. What if I just went back to heaven and reversed the whole plan? Would that satisfy you? What if I ascended back? We just forgot the whole thing. No. No. He goes on in verse 63 and says, listen, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The flesh is worthless. There is nothing you can do. To experience eternal life, there is nothing you can do to be a true disciple of Christ apart from the work of God in your life. You are in need. You are in need. And that's, that's, just, hard for the, that's just hard for us. We don't want to be in need. We like to be self-sufficient. We like to be independent. We like to be able to do things on our own. And Jesus says tough. You can't. The only way you'll ever experience eternal life and be my true disciple is by my spirit who alone gives life. Your human efforts are worthless. And so how do they respond? Verse 66. After this, many of disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
the cost of following Jesus is hard. It's hard because it means standing in our day and age for what is unpopular to society, what is unacceptable to society, what is possibly meaning. It means it's hard for us because it could mean we suffer for Christ. These so-called disciples left because the hardships outweighed the benefits. The hardships of following Christ outweighed the benefits. Seeing miracles are cool. Being fed supernaturally is great. But sharing in Christ's suffering, that was too much for them. Especially as they listened. Don't forget, they're in the synagogue. Jesus is saying these hard things. And the Jews around them are grumbling and talking of killing Jesus. And if you're one of his buds, that means you as well. And they're saying this is too hard. And so many turn away. Being a follower of Christ was no longer attractive. And look at this verse. And after this, many of his disciples turned away. In John Bunyan's most amazing book, Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is on his way to the celestial city. He has his armor on, and as he is walking along the path, he encounters Apollyon, who is the devil. And he realizes there is evil in front of him and a battle waiting And his first thought is, I'm going to turn back. I I should turn back. I, I, I can't face this. But then he has a moment of illumination. And he realizes, all my armor is facing forward. If I turn back, I have no protection from behind. And he presses on forward. Here, I believe, is what this passage is most about. Look at verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12 after many had turned away, do you want to go away as well? And here is Simon Peter. Here is Christian moving forward in Pilgrim's Progress. And here should be us. Lord, to whom shall we Go. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is the essence of a true disciple. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else? Am I going to go? Where else? Who else? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed. And we have come to know. This is 635 being fulfilled right here. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. These are the most profound words of the entire passage. Peter and his disciples listened well from the previous discourse 
that Jesus spoke about, if you want eternal life, you must come to me and you must believe in me. And these are the words that Peter speaks. These are the words of a true disciple. We don't turn back. We don't turn back. A true disciple is one who comes to Christ, who feeds on Christ, and who remains with Christ. That's who a true disciple is. So what's our application for a passage like this that is written to a group of believers 2,000 years ago? How do we fast forward for us? I think we can. We can ask two questions of ourselves. As a true disciple, first of all, are you feeding on Christ? Are you feeding on Christ? What fills your soul? Is there intimacy with Christ? Is intimacy with Jesus something you own and taste and do and feel? Or are there other relationships that, that draw more, more life for you than for Christ? Do you find life in things more than Christ? Is there something you possess in your life that gives you greater joy or excitement than Jesus Christ? Than abiding in him? Is there anything you look forward to more than feeding on Christ. I know it just, it, it just sounds so high religious. Like, oh yeah, that's the real super spiritual who feed on Christ and who abide in Christ and who want Christ more than anything else. That's the super religious. That's the super spiritual. I'm just a normal everyday Christian who lives life in the world. Yeah, I, I get that. But, but and, I, and I abide at times. And no, Jesus says, look, If you're a true disciple, you feed on me. You have to eat every day. You need to be sustained with normal, natural food every day. How much more so do we need to be sustained by abiding and feeding on our Savior? And then secondly, as a true disciple, are you courageously standing for Christ? What tempts you to shrink back? What's it like when moms, you're on the playground with other moms and you hear things that you know are in opposition to your Christian faith? Or a neighbor makes a comment that you know you should respond to, but you're just thinking, I don't want neighbor wars. What do you say? Or a coworker who makes comments, or an employer who takes a position that you know, that you know is opposed to your faith. And taking a stand for Christ could cost you your job. Are you moving forward like Christian? Or do you shrink back? Are you afraid to speak truth when falsehood is promoted? More and more, more and more we live in a society that demands political correctness, that demands that, demands that we remain silent as Christians. 
and more and more, we must stand with the courage. If the Savior, our teacher, is to be persecuted, how much more are his disciples? A true disciple feeds on Christ, and a true disciple courageously stands for Christ. Otherwise, you turn, your, you turn away. And who wants to turn away? What, what, do you, what do you go back to? What is there to go back to? What was life like before you were a Christian? Is there anything in your past that can compare with knowing Christ? Is there anything in your past that is more appealing to you than knowing Christ? Well, according to the 11 here, no. There was one who was not. He was a betrayer. He was a deceiver. But Jesus knew who were those who were his. And he knows those who are his here. Let us not turn back. Let's pray. Father, thank you first for choosing us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for bringing us into your family, for opening our eyes, opening our hearts when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, when we had no desire for you, when we had no desire to follow after you. In fact, Lord, we, we, we hated you. We rebelled against you and you called us. Thank you for doing that, Lord. And then thank you, Father, for giving us your spirit that we can remain standing firm, that we can remain courageous in the midst of opposition, and that we can, in the midst of opposition, express the love of God to the world, even when we are not loved back. Lord, may that, may that be our identification, that we are the ones who stand to love others for the cause of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.